Well, thanks, Greg, for taking the time to talk with me. I, I just have to say before we even start, you were the first person to reach out to me when I started the Soundworks collection. I was. You were in 2009 for Transformers. You reached out to me and you said, I, you know, I'm Greg Russell, I'm a re-recording mixer, I'm working on this Michael Bay phone, Transformers, would you be interested? And I just remember, of course, of course I would love to. And then and I remember going to IMDB and looking up, who is this Greg Russell guy? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you've, you've worked on so many great films, so you know, what is the Greg Russell story? Where, are, you, are you originally from LA? Where, where are you from? I'm originally born uh, in New York, raised in New Jersey. Um, my father was a studio musician and was uh, the lead, a lead alto sax player on the Merv Griffin show that was taped in New York. And so I, I grew up there, was there uh, till I was 12. And in 1971, uh, the Griffin Show moved from uh, taping in New York uh, to come out to California. And that's how the Russell family moved to L.A. Uh, um, for my dad's job. And uh, being around music uh, my whole life, you know, my dad being in studios, and I would go with him to recording studios uh, for record dates and television scoring dates and things of that nature, I always saw the guy, you know, behind the panel, mm. you know, and... And I was fascinated by, you know, that, that perspective. Um, playing, he, he had me, you know, playing saxophone and, and various instruments as a kid, and I just dreaded practicing alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked being with people. Right. <laughs> um, so being alone with your instrument in that way was just not what, what my deal. And, uh, and I had a lot of friends that were musicians uh, growing up, and uh, obviously there was always a PA sound system. Okay. And so even at 14, 15, I would tweak and get a better drum sound and, and started doing live sound while I was in high school. Mm. Uh, my dad found a, a, was working out of a studio, TTG Recording Studios in Hollywood, and uh, it, he came to understand that there was a class being held there. Um, by a renowned uh, re uh, uh, recording engineer, Bill Lazarus, who had worked with some of the amazing legend, greats. Yeah. yeah, legend recording engineer. And he asked me while I was still in high school, would you care to, you know, take this class? And I said, absolutely. You know, and so as a 17-year-old, um, I was driving to Hollywood at night uh, for this class. It was once a week. And I had people in that class that were like Louis Shelton, who was at the time producing all the Seals and Crofts uh, records. And so in 1975, six, they were, he, this guy was huge. And I, I, was, I was just so thrilled and excited that I was actually being able to be in this class. Um, and I'm very grateful to Bill Lazarus, um, who was my first mentor and, uh, and, and took me under his wing gave me the opportunity uh, because Ami Hadani, the owner of that studio, uh, asked Bill, do you have any young, I'm looking for someone to answer phones, to be yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that first, there's no money here, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but do you want a job and, in a recording studio? And, and so that was, my first, that was my first job. What were they teaching you? What, what was even the technology that, it at was the time? There, he, uh, the, 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 the textbook was Modern Recording Techniques. Yeah. I forget who the author was. Yeah. Um, it was all about, you know, uh, microphone placement. It was, you know, aligning tape machines. It was, right. you know, all of all of the elementary uh, concepts of, you know, of recording. 
um, mic placement, microphone selection, the proper patterns, yeah. um, and uh, phase relationship between microphones, etc. And uh, and then that was a a beginning class. Then there was a hands-on hmm. where he brought in a band, and we were going to track drums and oh, bass, fun. guitars, etc. Like an A-track or a no, four-track? Yeah, this there was it was a sixteen-channel uh, multi-track machine. Um, so, so that was the, the first there, yeah, that was a, it was an API console, uh, with an MCI, uh, uh, 16 track machine. And so, yeah, that was the beginnings of, uh, and I was just honored to kind of be in the environment. I was thrilled. I was so excited to be in the environment. It, you know, when something resonates with you, you know, and, and you realize this is, this is something that I am passionate about. And that was evident to me, you know, at that time. You know, I really was. So coming out of those initial courses, what was your instinct? Where did you want to go? Was it a traditional recording studio? Did you really Yeah, know I just wanted to make records. Okay. I just wanted to make records. <laughs> I had no, no vision of, of, of being in film yeah. uh, other than the fact that the recording, getting the job at TTG, um, that was their primary work, was mm. um, motion picture scoring, television scoring, and record work and jingles, etc. Yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, Ami Hadani, who owned the studio, who just passed this last year, um, I owe so much to him. You know, I I worked for him for four years, from 1977 to 1981. And you know, he gave a kid responsibility that you just don't get. <laughs> you know, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just don't get that kind of yeah. opportunity. Um, I was his second engineer up on the scoring stage, mm. um, working on some amazing movies with composers as early on Jamie, James Horner stuff. One movie was, I think it was The Hand, if I recall, which was an Oliver Stone film. Um, I learned a lot of lessons. I mean, I learned <laughs> so much from Ami that about balance. I, and truthfully, you know, some of the early things that he taught me about balance balance, well-balanced content serves me as I moved from music only into film. And so I have so much to be grateful for, for with him and, and the opportunity that he gave me. But it was super exciting. Mm. Um, his primary television client was all the Spelling Goldberg film uh, television. Yeah. So all the Love Boat and Heart to Heart and Vegas and Family and Charlie's Angels and I was a part of all of those scoring sessions as his second engineer, slating all of the, the running all the tape machines and slating and doing all the, the microphone setup, and he would walk in and everything would be set for him. And uh, so I, I couldn't be, uh, yeah, I was, it was an exciting time for me. Um, and in 1981, um, I was longing to get in the union, <laughs> you know, I, I, he, I wasn't getting paid. I yeah. mean, bottom line, I was given, it was like going to four-year college right. and not earning any money, really. I was making $250 a week, 12 grand a year, yeah. but I was working on two to three union sessions uh, a day. And so I wasn't getting any benefits and wasn't getting anything along those lines. And uh, I was given the opportunity to go to Evergreen Studios, which, uh, you know, my father was a good friend and became a partner of uh, with Charlie Fox, who was one of the owners of the facility. And then I moved uh, uh, over in 81. And wow. they did all similar work, only it was a newer facility, brand new. 
in fact. And Bill Lazarus, my, my teacher, mm -hmm. was running the studio. And, and uh, so I felt like this is a nice home. And, and they, in, in the end, that's what I got in the union was in 1981. Yeah. What, what can you say just about like kind of the career path that you thought that you were going to go down at that point? Because these are all very new types of positions per se in terms of like the industry that was starting to evolve into what it has turned into more of today. Well, I, you know, I like I said, I did not have any sights on you know motion picture, you know, mixing, right. re-recording, re re-recording, yeah, at all, and uh, and. I was entrenched in wanting to be the best engineer I could be, and I was given the opportunities to, to second some really amazing engineers um, and producers. Uh, Bob Ezrin, who just came off of the producer of the year for Pink Floyd's The Wall, and, and I remember Ami saying, you're going to have to second for him. Uh, he's coming <laughs> in, and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I, are, what? You know? and, and then he was telling me about some of the ways that he created sounds you know, for that, you know, he, he took a, a one of those kind of rubber super balls that bounce real high mm -hmm. and, and had that on a stick, almost like a mallet, and he would rub it underneath the underneath a piano mm -hmm. and mic the piano and the reverberation of this <laughs> kind of sound that he used. It was sound designing, you know, for this record. And I just thought, here I am being exposed to this and um, you know, I was at the time like 20 years old, and uh, so great gift to just be exposed to such talented people, and and I, and and that has been consistent through my career. Yeah. You know that I, that good fortune of being given opportunity to sit next to people that are so talented. That's what I think truly builds who you are and what you are. It's not anybody becomes who they are in their yeah, yeah. infinite wisdom. Right. I think it really is just being exposed to to um, people working and, and watching and listening and observing and, and, and noting things that are very cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving to Evergreen, you know, they were doing motion picture scoring and okay. a lot more record work because it was a newer facility, much more state-of-the-art. Harry Nielsen was working with Rick Riccio. Uh, there and so was exposed to a lot of cool uh, projects mm. um, and you know and and I was just thinking this week my sister who went to Michael Masser's um, service and you mm. know um, which is really sad because what an extraordinary songwriter and I had the opportunity to second for an engineer for him mm -hmm. Uh, recording vocals for Neil Diamond at Evergreen on stage one. And, hmm. and I remember ha creating a vocal slave 24 track. Um, and I thought we would like be punching into vocals and um, creating a composite track. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to record 22 takes of this vocal top to bottom. Yeah. And then after the fact, make a composite from that. From that. Oh, and God. like cr grabbing breaths and you know, from one to take to the other. And I just thought, this guy's nuts, <laughs> you know. But his, his sense of perfectionism was extraordinary. And every take, in my opinion, was brilliant. I yeah, mean, yeah. Neil was, it was just unbelievable. His tone, his rich quality was, was un unbelievable. And uh, so, again, just being exposed to genius yep. of 
producers and engineers, that has uh, been a tremendous gift. What was the transition then from going from those Evergreen Studios to the next I, step? I, uh, I, was, I left Evergreen um, Studios in 1983, um, was going through some personal changes in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I've got, this is the first time I ever received a phone call from the union. Okay. Um, to go over and work at a post-production facility. And at the time, I was... What year was this around? This was 1983. Okay. In 1983, and I got a call from Jeff Habush, who was just given the opportunity to, uh, to mix. The mixer was leaving, and they did basically trailers there and... Uh, some Saturday, uh, mostly trailers at the time, but some, some Saturday morning cartoons and things. And he called me up to say, to say um, you know, we've got a machine room and, you know, and I was, I, I needed to work. Yeah. And I uh, said, yeah, I can, I'll, I'll come over and take a look at it. And, mm. um, and, and we then, uh, with my background in recording, they had a Foley stage and they had a room where they were recording voices for animation oh, nice. for the Saturday mornings where you had one to up to 15 uh, actors in a room with you know microphones and reading out reading a script live all going to a quarter inch tape and they said can you do that and, yeah and I said yeah sure absolutely. sure why not? yeah yeah absolutely I mean uh, and so that was the start of being in a kind of mm. post-production environment and uh, and then he was getting opportunities to um, to mix television, and he asked, with my music background, would I join him on the on the dub stage? Mm. Uh, and I said, sure, absolutely. And that mm. kind of started my re-recording uh, career. Uh, we were working on a lot of... Uh, uh, the irony is that yeah. we were, were in 1985, 86, um, we were doing a lot of Saturday morning cartoons, uh -huh. um, some of which were the Transformers uh, no cartoons. Way. Yeah. Which were then, th almost 30 years later, return. Right. right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and and G.I. Joe wow. uh, uh, cart Saturday morning cartoons yeah. and have been involved in all the live action, wow. or, or some of uh, yeah. G.I. Joe, as well as the Transformers. Um, so we just embarked on, we didn't know what we were doing, truthfully. What I mean, stages were you on? We were in, uh, w there was one primary stage over there. It's kind of where... Uh, it's where uh, Marty Humphrey's um, uh, oh, okay. facility the is dub stage, now. Yeah. The dub stage, right. right on Magnolia, and that was our room. That okay. was that was our room, <laughs> and we started mixing low budget features, uh, and uh, you know none that were really all that uh, known. A mm -hmm. lot of slasher kind of movies and and things of that nature. Uh, we did a movie called Hollywood Shuffle, uh, which was really kind of a funny movie. Robert Townsend, who financed it all for a hundred grand on his credit cards, um, which was crazy. But we did the first, uh, the Hairspray, you know, with John oh, nice. Waters, yep. you know, the very first one. Uh, and, uh, and we just kind of, I, I hate to use the expression shaving on someone else's face, but we really <laughs> did try, you know, uh, we're just trying to get a feel for what this, this uh, this workflow was and and what it was like to create the kind of shape and clarity um, from an early you know uh, early on product that you know Foley was all too loud and sure, all the yeah, footsteps yeah. you know 
and you listen to some of that early content that you were involved with and you see how much you've grown. And again, that growth has come from sitting next to people that have been doing it on a larger scale. Mm. Uh, and that's truly the, the course of it. I was there for five years, from 83 to 88. And we did, at the time, uh, uh, through that five-year period, 55 feature films. We didn't spend a lot of time on them, yeah. um, but we did 55 features together. Oh, my God. And, uh, and I, we had done a temp mix on Rambo 3 for, at the time, the, Michael Sloan was the post-supervisor for Carol Co. And we did a temp mix, and they had a very small um, uh, screening room that they put a little console in. And he had asked me to come over there to help them set it up to be able to do like little temp mixes in there. Sure. And I did that. And, uh, and I thanked him for gi giving us the, the, the temp mix on a, on a real movie. On a real on, movie. On a right, real right, movie. Right, right. Exactly. And he said to me that, you know, you're, you're very talented and thank you for coming over and setting this all up and doing a little mix for us and, mm. and all. And, and he said, um, you know, I, you know, you, you guys do your, you know, what you do over there. And I knew the niche we were in, the little small yeah, movie. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, I, I'm having a meeting next week because um, mm. uh, the final of the Rambo was going to be done at Warner Hollywood Studios. Right. Which, um, truth of it is, uh, you know, it was like, well, that's where they do the big movies. Right. And I understood that. And I'm going to just rewind two mm. years ago. Um, you know, from, you know, I forgot to state, in, 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 before I started mm. into this re-recording post thing, in 1981, I went to see a movie. Mm -hmm. And I just, I've always had to say this because mm. I find it to be um, a turning point in me. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone has the, those, those moments. And I too. was sitting in, uh, I think it was 81, in the middle of, the front row of the back section of the Cinerama Dome, getting ready to watch a six-track discrete mix um, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm listening to all of this material panning around the room mm -hmm. and the big ball rolling and the subwoofer just making my chest, you know, feel all of this mm -hmm. energy Right. It was so exciting to me. I, it was the, really kind of the first light bulb moment yeah. of somebody's panning this. Yeah. Somebody's doing this. Yeah. This is all of these layers of sounds. And, and like I said, at, in 81, I was strictly music. That's yeah. all that I really knew. And it really opened my eyes to this is impressive. Mm. And those guys um, who I was fortunate enough to become very good friends with. Uh, when I made the move to Warner Brothers, I was honored um, for this next phase of my career to, to but Bill Varney, uh, Greg Landaker, Steve Maslow mixed that movie. And I didn't get to know Bill very well. He had already moved over to Universal when I, in 88, came to work at Warner Hollywood. But Greg and Steve were still there. And so many names of people that I would look up at the big movies and go, wow, that was really great. Yeah. And amongst those names were Don, Donald O. Mitchell, uh, Rick Klein, Kevin O'Connell, um, Bob Litt, Elliot Tyson, all of these guys that 
you know, I had been watching and listening to work, I was so impressed with. And when Michael Sloan said to me that he was meeting with Donald Rogers, who ran that studio, and that name was like, oh, yeah, he was like, yeah. he was like the president of the club, if there is a club. Yeah. Um, and that he was going to say, you know, tell him about me. That's all he was. That's all he said. And I said, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And a week later, I got a call from Don Rogers. Man. And I was, I, I started, I got really nervous. Yeah, sure. And he said, uh, Greg, Greg, this is, this is Don <laughs> Rogers over at Warner, Warner Hollywood Studios. And I went, hi, Don. Um, you know, he says, you know, I've, I've, I've spoke with, I won't stay in my Don Rogers voice <laughs> or my attempt to, but he said, I, I had a conversation with Mike, Michael Sloan, yeah. and he had a lot of very nice things to say about you, and I'd like to meet you. And we are looking for a music mixer um, for Stage A to work wow. with Bob Litt. Oh, wow. And so I was so thrilled and so excited. And in the end, uh, we met. Everything went really well. I then met with Bob Litt for lunch and um, was given the opportunity to go over there. Uh, and, I mean, it was really kind of a, a, a dream come true uh, to, to be given that opportunity to come to the place where those guys, again, that I yep. looked up to and, and really respected were there. So... What, what were some of the projects that you worked on while you were there? My first, my first project there was uh, Tequila Sunrise in mm -hmm. 1988 with um, Robert Town directing. Mm -hmm. And it was a little uh, intimidating, to say the least, because everyone in that room were kind of Oscar-winning, Oscar-related. Um, uh, Claire Simpson was mm -hmm. the film editor who had just won the Oscar for Platoon two years prior to that. Kay Rose was a supervising sound editor. It was an Oscar winner for The River. Um, all of these people were, D Dave Grusin was the composer. Um, I, I was, you know, just, just to be in the room was a really, a real thrill. <laughs> I, mean, I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Well, how old were you at that time? I was 29. Okay. I was 29 years old, I believe it was, yeah, 88, yeah. so I was 29 years old. And uh, I just thought, you know what, Gregory, just do what you've done with the movies that you've done. Right. Um, and, and it's all, clear the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just clear the dialogue Make, yeah. and try to, and I did, brought some of my gear, because back in the, on that movie, it wasn't anything uh, as a discrete 5-1. Mm. It was still an LT, RT, 4-2-4 matrix scenario. So all the music was kind of collapses a bit. Yeah. And so I had a couple of devices that dealt with some, you know, shift that allowed things to stay a little wider. Um, I did a little EQ, you yeah. know, uh, that I did that a little on the top end, a little yeah. on the bottom end, just to give a little warmth and a little little transient sizzle on top. Uh -huh. And I had a couple of chambers, and I did some things and pulled stuff into the surrounds, and and I and and I did all of this kind of stuff that I normally did. And I remember Dave Grusin saying to me, uh, "You're doing stuff." <laughs> and I got all nervous. And, yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, "I said, well, yeah." I'm, you know, he says, "Can," 
and I had already laid down the opening cue. Mm. So on the recorder lived what I had done. He said, can you do me a favor and just take everything, go flat with the oh EQ, God. take any reverbs off, take just anything processing, and I just want to hear how it's hitting the stage. Yeah. And 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 I so I took everything off, and the beautiful part is that if you went to the white side of the keys, which was input, to the recorder that was dry with everything right. as it came to me. And then if you pull the paddles back to greens and playback, it was mine. So he could A, B, Maybe it, yeah. you know, what I did and what it, how it came. And he looked at me and he looked at Bob Litt because I didn't have any relationship. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. I was terrified. Said, Please let it sound yeah, better yeah, yeah. Than, than, you know. And it did. Okay, good. Um, and he looked at Bob and he said, wow, it it's it's so much more open and warmer and and it's all around me and and he was very complimentary mm. uh and so i was i was very grateful you know it was you know because it was kind of i'm the it's new one kid. of those moments i'm the new kid yeah, and, yeah. and uh and anyway um there's a little backstory and and I, there was a mixer who wanted to be a part of the show uh -huh. remain on but had let the supervising sound editor know that he was available and he was a seasoned veteran and a, just a tremendous, you know, big name guy. And yet um, he had worked with uh, Bob earlier that year uh, on a film. And Bob was presented with, you know, do we go with the, the big name guy or, you know, the, the new kid? New kid, yeah. And he said, how are we going to know what the new kid has? Unless we see what he has, yeah. And I was, you know, that was one another moment where yeah, you just yeah. you think back of the things that that could have changed the course of everything right. for me. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful to Bob Litt for for <laughs> for standing his ground as the gaffing mixer, and um, and Bob actually um, Don Rogers was aware mm. that this individual was in the wings if things didn't go well. Okay. And when yeah, Bob yeah. got those those endorsements from Dave Grusin that it's, you know, one of the first times things have actually sounded better here, he went upstairs to say, we're I good. just heard him get, get, the kid got a great compliment and I think we're going to be fine. So in other words, kind of call off the dogs, you know. I'm yeah. so grateful I didn't know any of that was happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had enough yeah. stress and pressure within my own world um, I didn't know any of that was going on at the time. What were, so, f I mean, how long did that residency last there? Well, I, 88, um, in 89, um, I uh, was, had an opportunity um, to work on a temp mix of Black Rain with Don Mitchell and okay. Kevin O'Connell. And uh, beknownst to me, it was Ridley Scott. And um, I ended up getting to do the movie. I, it was slated for Tony Scott recommended to Ridley to use my crew and Rick Klein was not available and I just did the temp mix wow. and um, and then uh, uh, Tom Rolfe was the, who just passed this mm. year as well, um, was the film editor and I somehow, you know, they, they kept me on the movie. Uh, that movie went on to get nominated uh, for an Academy Award, and I remember going to dinner with Kevin the night before nominations came out, and I wasn't privy to any of this. Yeah. I, I just wasn't aware of any of it. It just wasn't my world at right. all. And Kevin said, you know, there's a chance we could get nominated tomorrow. And uh -huh. I said, 
What, you know, I didn't, I had no comprehension of that. And so I remember him, you know, kind of toasting, you know, best of luck, man, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and he had been nominated several, many times already. And, uh, and he, my phone rang that morning <laughs> and it was Don Rogers calling me saying, congratulations, that you had just been nominated for an Academy Award for Black Rain. Huh. And I just, what? <laughs> you know? And then my phone rang again and it was Kevin and and it was just a very surreal yeah. moment and something I'll never ever forget. Yeah. Never forget that. So I was there um uh through ninety five. Okay. Um and so eighty eight to ninety five I was at Warner Hollywood and well, again what else did you work on there? I mean, uh, that's what I'm uh, uh, gosh, you know, uh, a lot of fun projects. <laughs> uh um did a film with Jeff Abush over there, uh, Star Trek VI, mm-hmm. um, that we did. Uh, a lot of fun films like My Cousin Vinny, um, things yeah. that, you know, I look back uh, that are just kind of really uh, a variety of, of films and, and filmmakers. And uh, it was just a, a really amazing time. It was amazing also because I, again, I said, you know, to be there with those names that I had identified with as being in the big leagues, because it really was being drafted to the major leagues. At that point, yeah, absolutely. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, That was pretty uh, amazing. And, uh, you know, so just to kind of be amongst them was a real honor. And and Greg Landaker went on to go on his own, and, um, and then Kevin and Rick left and did their own thing. And then Maslow, and I was I did shows with Steve, and um, yeah. and so uh, it, it's it's been you know it was a really really great time. But Kevin um, contacted me in 1995 and was at Sony Studios and was making a change in in his in his world yeah. and invited me down to join him in the Cary Grant Theater, um, and. It was an, a, a phenomenal opportunity, and very grateful. And we uh, we had some amazing years together. So I'm know. just looking at the. I mean, some of the projects that came through there from '95 on. Was that did it start with this bad company? Um, it, we did that. Uh, usual we, suspects. We, we did usual usual suspects. I did at at Warner Hollywood with Bob Litt. Okay. Uh, and that was a, one of those really great. It was a great film. Yeah. It was a great film, and it was one. I don't know if it was Brian Singer's first film but um uh it was it was you know just a, a great experience but uh, w- going over there i i went over there and it was some little films uh, my first one there i think it was house arrest <laughs> um but <laughs> soon to come was michael bay's the rock which mm. was a very large you know soundscape and um and how did that come to you how did the project land it was it kevin sure? Ke- michael uh had worked with kevin on bad boys okay and so that booking came and um you know i uh, was very excited the supervising sound editor was george waters who i had worked with in the past um on several projects and probably one of my favorite favorite all-time sound supervisors in yeah. this business well, um well, what can you remember of just what was your first impression of michael when you first met him and he brought you the rock <laughs> uh well, I was again. I was just blessed to be uh, a part of the team, uh, and and 
I didn't have the relationship. Um, and yeah. so, uh, but I do remember, you know, Real One and his, uh, our first playback. And so it kind of bypasses all of the pre-dubbing and so forth work that went into the movie. But I remember Michael coming in and it's a, a sequence with Ed Harris um, in a cemetery. Mm -hmm. um, kind of making a pledge to his wife and it's a torrential downpour in the cemetery <laughs> and we had all these various rain textures and um, all around you and it's we, we did it as a as a 5-1 uh, mix and uh, you know all the little you know impact patter on the stone on the on on uh, on the cemetery on the uh, the headstones and close-ups of that and all these different textures and Michael was just, you know, what's with all the effing rain, <laughs> you know, uh, and, yeah. you know, and I kept lowering it and taking elements yeah. and lowering and he says, you know, what's with all the effing rain, you mm -hmm. know, it's, and, and so I kept, I'll take it out. You want to take it out? You know, you know, anyway, it was, uh, um, uh, he was, you know, he was bold and he was, you know, there was an energy around him that made, uh, for a, an intimidating force. Um, and we, uh, but we got along, you know, we, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a matter of jumping through hoops. I mean, it really is a matter of, you know, this is who's calling the shots. We have to tailor it directly to how he wants it, regardless of what anyone else thinks in the room. Yeah. Um, and regardless of how it was prepared, we now have to reshape and rethink the perspective of the soundscape um, based on what his feedback is uh, and the notes. So, um, and we did that quickly and we got, we got into it and it was a great, great, uh, it was a good movie. Um, it went on to be very successful and, and we, we had a really fun time uh, in the soundscape and underneath, uh, you know, Alcatraz and in the tunnels and the fire, you know, explosions through the tunnels. It was super fun film to work on. So uh, that was the start of kind of a lot of mi many I mean, That's what I was going to say, like coming up like here, in, uh, so that was in 1996. So f soon following that, I mean, you're looking at Con Air, Starship Troopers, Godzilla, Armageddon, The Mask of Zorro, Enemy of the State. It started to kind of set a precedent of the type of movies that you were being sought after for. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. There were uh, many large sound sound films uh and all of which i uh am grateful because each one you uh, you learn so much and and i was very grateful kevin and i coming together um i had spent so many years in the music chair that could be helpful because he was yeah. now embarking on doing dialogue and music whereas other his partner recline would do music and he would do dialogue and effects and the great part for me um, was that he was such a talented, seasoned effects mixer that he helped in a great way hone my skills in, in what I was doing, especially on these large soundscapes, yeah. because he had experience. He was the effects mixer on Top Gun and Silverado and films where I looked and went, this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. This guy is very talented. And so I then, you know, was learning. In every one of these movies, the next year was Con Air, and uh, um, and then Armageddon and The Mask of Zorro, and yeah. so forth. What, uh, what was the gradual shift you saw in terms of how film scores and music and just the just the soundtrack in general was being treated? Because things started to get louder, things started to get wider, more surround. Yeah, I mean, once everything went where 
where it wasn't uh, it was it wasn't just the movie that was blown out to a seventy millimeter track that could get a five point one discrete soundtrack. The mm -hmm. minute that um, digital became available on a thirty five millimeter print, it became a new toy. Yeah, you know, and I I truly believe, and and there there was a phase of that timeline that you speak of that movies were really you know way too loud. You yeah. know, and, and it was just kind of like this. Oh God, we can so. We are, and yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean we should. <laughs> right. Uh, but that was that was the case. Certainly, the case with Armageddon and Godzilla. I think those were two films that you know, t by today's standards, you know, would be, you know, way overcooked. And mm. and I in, uh, we we I admit that you know. Uh, but again, um, you know, it it really was uh, uh, again learning. You know, now with these tools to say, hey, let's 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 focus and. And, and create this shape within a dynamic range that is much more palatable. Yeah. Um, we, we don't want to be abusive, you know. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the late 90s. It was kind of like the, the rise of digital music um, in the sense of, you know, Napster wasn't quite on the scene yet in the early 2000s, but I think with um, just kind of what you guys are doing with Surround, do you remember, of, I, well, I just think of like Godzilla, it was like a big emphasis on like the, the um, the Puff Daddy song and like Armageddon had Aerosmith and like that was a thing was these big bombastic music tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, clearly, you know, the the identification with, you know, signature songs, you know, in film, it's 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 been around. It's been right. You know, if you can c make that connection to a film. Uh, take my breath away that, that totally. song you know and, and top gun and you just go you know you immediately it, it puts you right there and I think that's the same uh, and consistent with some of the films you've just mentioned yeah um, you know and it certainly doesn't it doesn't help it doesn't hurt um, the whole marketing and merchandising of one hand helping the other you have this hit record that perpetually helps to invigorate you know the film you know moviegoer and vice versa yeah. So I think they're kind of working together. When know? when did you transition from? Because you were at Sony for a long stretch. You were there sixteen years, which is incredible. I mean, a lot of projects and a lot of good work. When did you transition out of Sony? Um, just about uh, well, in, in this summer will be four years. Okay. Um, you know, it will be four years this summer, uh, and uh, four years ago now uh, is when my last film there, which was Man on a Ledge for uh, the producer Lorenzo de Bonaventura and yeah. uh, and and so um, and and then I made the, the the move to go over to Technicolor yeah and partner up with uh, Scott Milan yeah and uh, it was uh, and, and and that's been incredible and it's uh, again I re I, I reflect on even in my you know that we Kevin and I were together 12 years mm -hmm. and we had such a great time, you know, for all, much of it, and it was um, just changes, and and you know, you just have to, you know, come to terms with feeling like you need to you need to make a change, and uh, and we did that after twelve years. But I, I don't, I don't for one minute um, underestimate the gift of the time that we shared together, and uh, because we laughed so much, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's. It was so fun. Um, we worked, I mean, it was back when schedules were going around the clock and people were laying on the floors. And totally. everyone who's been in this business knows of the time that I speak. 
And you know, how in the world are we putting in 105 hours a week on something? And so you are in the trenches with each other. You need each other. This is such a huge collaborative effort. Yeah. Um, this process in general is such a huge collaboration from not just collaborating with the director and the producers, but you have all of your sound editors and designers and your pre-dubbing and um, the sound supervisor and your fellow mixer and all of these, you know, you're, you're giving and taking, um, constantly working together. And uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous really kind of thing to be a part of. It really is an yeah. honor to be a part of this kind of deal and uh, and to get to do have done it with some of the people that I've been able to sit next to. Um, it's been extraordinary. My first year out of that partnership, I worked with Michael Semanic on a film. I worked with Tom Fleischman on a film. I worked with Gary Summers on a film. I worked with Jeff Habush on a, on, on a film that year, that first year away, you know. And everybody has different styles and different ways of doing things. But again, it's about this kind of yin and yang of, of uh, collaborating and balancing um, all of these elements in a film together. And nobody does it alone. Uh, I certainly, you know, uh, love what my sensibilities are, but I'm also there to serve. I'm there to be there and make this whatever whom we're, you know, whether the director's calling the shots, the film editor at times is the guy, is the guy gaffing the dub. Um, it's a, it's really, you know, a, a, an incredible process. So uh, um, m making the move to Technicolor with Scott was really an unbelievable uh, move and the room is, the stage is yeah. beautiful and brand new from the ground up beautiful uh, concept. Um, Mike Novich was the, uh, our chief engineer and, you know, and the man worked so, so tirelessly get it to, right. to get it right. Yeah. And, and it's just incredible, the energy that went into it. And I'm grateful for my relationship with Kurt Belmer, who was the one who we were, you know, talking and negotiating, trying to put our, the talent together. Um, and, uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was really quite, you know, exciting time, and uh, and it still is. It's a it's a beautiful facility. <laughs> um, it's phenomenal, and uh, very excited to if you know, within our first year there, we we did kind of a combo uh, workflow of on the film Skyfall, and you know that was a thrill. You know yeah. that was uh, Scott's client uh, uh, um, Sam Mendez, and very thrilled to get the opportunity to work with him. Uh, Not everyone can say that they worked on a James Bond film, so and that was that was a, that was extra special. <laughs> yeah, you know, being a fan, <laughs> being a fan that that also uh, played a lot into uh, wow, oh my god, yeah, you know. And we were the first American crew to be a part of the Bond franchise, yeah. um, so that was that was a thrill. And uh, I mean, what can you say? Just if you think back to when you started Warner Brothers to now, how would you describe your own evolution of how you listen? Can you get a sense of it? Is it because it seems like it'd be so subtle over this many years? I think I think the perspective that I have on this now, in in sense, in the sense that um, I think story more than I ever did early on. Okay, and that was really being just again the learning process of understanding who we're serving, what we're serving, mm -hmm. and it really is story. Um, and so that became more. I became more aware of that 
time and time. Rather, oh, make this cool. Make yeah, this yeah, yeah. sound cool. Make, you know, a, a, a creative soundscape. But now the focus more so is that's all great, but what serves each moment for the film and best, you know, helps the narrative of that film. And so that's kind of the, the, the biggest difference in okay. how I listen and, and what I look for in terms of clarity and articulation within story. I think that's also been the case of like in the industry. That's been a shift of, of not only the creative side of the directors and, and the editors understanding how sound can play into it. I think it's just, you know, people always say, oh, sound's always chasing picture. And it's like, you know, picture's always the, in, the, in the forefront. But in, in this case, because we're at a place with, you know, the immersion that of, of adaptive audio and all this mm -hmm. other stuff going on, I think you guys are still being challenged to, to, to kind of show what sound can do. It hasn't stopped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and with the new sound formats that are now available with Atmos and you, the new IMAX um, format sure. and, uh, and oral sound with ceiling yep. uh, and upper, you know, surrounds, etc. You know, there, it's, it really is how can we transport an audience to a place you know, an experience of film uh, in a different way. And, mm. uh, and again, staying true to the basic concepts of a well-balanced film, you know, dialogue and clarity <laughs> of, 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 of that narrative um, and, and how the ebb and flow of music and sound effects and how they work together. Mm. Um, and so those basic concepts of the early guys that did this job are still in place today. Yeah, you know, regardless of the new tools of, of, of what's available to to get the you know the workflow to where it needs to be, um, it's still you know uh, if you can't hear the words and or um, everything is just so busy you can't hear anything, um, uh, you got to take a step back and, and get back to basics. Yeah, you know. So, lastly, where where do you see yourself five, ten years from now? Um, what does, it, still, what does it look like? You know what? I still love this, this job, yeah. and creating as much as I ever did. I, I really do. I mean, I I know that it's it's different now. Time has changed. I get all that. My enthusiasm for being a part of this process hasn't wavered uh, one bit for me, and so I still am very excited about doing what we do. Um, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing a filmmaker who has spent, whether it's two years or four years on a project, in these end final, you know, the, the film isn't a film until all of these sound elements are, are put together and woven into this kind of tapestry of magnificence that they look back and sit back and when a filmmaker goes, my God, this is great. This is so, this is beyond what I could have imagined. There's something so satisfying in those moments at the end of a playback, you know, at the end of the process mm -hmm. for all of us involved that we've worked together to hone and mold and shape this being uh, that is now, it's almost like a child that's birthed. Absolutely, yeah. And you, uh, now you're going to give it out to moviegoers worldwide. And that's the other thing is really kind of special to do something that you know in two to three weeks or a month, mm -hmm. audiences around the world are going to yeah. pay their money, buy some popcorn, sit down in a seat, and experience every nuance that all of us 
were, were participated in. Yeah. There's something really special about that. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, also the fact that there's probably someone just like you when you saw, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It moved That, me. that might want to yeah. pursue this and will be telling their story and saying, oh, well, it was, the, it was Armageddon or it was, you know, Salt or Spider-Man, whatever it may have been. Right, right. Same way. So um, thank yeah. you, Greg, for taking the uh -huh. time. Thanks for having me. It was an honor and, and it's always fun to talk with you.